0: Our scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So please open your Bibles to page 1011, and uh, let's read James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe, for
1: reading for us, and uh, let me wish you all a a very warm welcome. Uh, You can think of this bow as a visual representation of my affections for you. (laughs) Uh, And if you're new around here, uh, we're especially glad that you've joined us. We hope that this is the first of many visits for you. Uh, out in Naperv- Naperville, there's a big um, carillon, which is basically a, a tall a bell tower that's programmed to play music. And it's probably a dozen years ago, my wife and I were out walking there, and uh, I remember coming across a memorial of some kind to a benefactor of the park. Uh, I don't remember if it was a bench or a-, a stone monument or what it was, but whatever it was, it had an inscription on the memorial declaring the life philosophy of that dead guy. I can't quote it, but I haven't forgotten the gist of it. It said that this man held to no particular creed, but what he lived by was to love all people. He wasn't religious, he didn't have a creed, but he did have a deep concern for how he treated people. And I think James, the author of this letter, would have liked that guy, He would have agreed with the with the no particular creed part because James definitely has very firm spiritual beliefs. But he would have been pretty cool with the the loving everyone part, because James' point in this passage that Joe just read is to love your neighbors, all of them. He's taking aim at a situation in a church that is failing pretty disastrously in loving their neighbors. They love some of them. They love the ones who are externally valuable to them, but not the ones who aren't. So, love all of your neighbors. Let's pray together as we think about loving our neighbors. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the bold and direct and even uncomfortable voice of James Thank you that the standards for Christian love are so high. That Thank you that they actually count for something. And yet we also recognize that that we struggle to be people who love. So in your mercy, help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So love all of your neighbors. Don't just love your neighbor, but love all of them. If you were with us last week, you remember how James is describing true religion as doing the word. It's, it's not just hearing the word, it's not just hearing the gospel, but but true religion is the way God's word becomes an authority over your life that you submit to, that you obey. It's a, it's a guide that leads you, in which you are to follow. And that makes you a doer of the word, James says, not just a hearer. And actually, James is going to stick on this theme of doing instead of just hearing all the way through the end of chapter 2, which we'll, we'll get to next week. And today, James is taking aim at a situation where the church he's writing to is not doing the word because they're not loving all of their neighbors. They're showing partiality. Look at that again in verse 1. This, this is the main point of this whole section. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Showing partiality just means showing preference for something over something else. You're, you're, you're assigning valuable to something, to one thing, that's measured against the value of something else. But some of you are partial to the cubs over the socks. Some of you are partial to the socks over the cubs, And some of you are partial to just about anything over the Cubs or the Sox. We we, we all show partiality all the time. We have endless amounts of, of personal preferences. The problem that James is getting at here, though, is being partial to some people, some kinds of people, over others. Especially to the rich over the poor. And his basic point from the beginning here is that you can't show partiality like that and hold to faith in Jesus at the same time. They, they, they just don't go together. Uh, prejudice, uh, the personal bias, and faith in Christ are just fundamentally incompatible with each other. And he calls Jesus here the Lord of glory. He, he's the Lord who is glorious. Which is important because when you're showing partiality to certain kinds of people, it means that you're giving glory to people who are not obligated to your, to your glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory, not other people. But that's exactly what this church was doing. James gives an example here of a rich band and a poor band. It's probably a hypothetical example. I don't think something exactly like this has happened. But it's, it's illustrating some very real problems that this church is struggling with. So here's the illustration, verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So two men walk into church, a rich man and a poor man, The rich man, they treat with fawning deference and honor. It's it's almost cringeworthy how groveling they are. You you sit here in the best seat, the, the, the best seat for the best patron. But the poor man, they treat with contempt. Go stand over there by the back so we don't have to look at you or we can't smell you. Uh, go stand over there in the corner, so if any important people walk in any any important first time visitors then then you 're not the first person they see, or you come sit here beneath me because that 's where you belongs beneath me you're grovelling to one contempt for the other you're, you're, you're showing partiality and it doesn't fit with faith. In Jesus, the Lord of glory. In fact, James says in verse 4 that when you've done that, you've made distinctions among yourselves. The word there is interesting. Distinctions maybe isn't the best translation because it's the same word as double minded back in chapter 1, verse 8. In other words, if James was warning you back in chapter 1 of being double minded, of being spiritually schizophrenic, of your devotion being pulled in in different directions, when you show partiality for some people over others, you're showing this same kind of double-mindedness. So it's not just that you're you're making divisions between people, but you yourself are divided in your heart, saying you have faith in Christ, but partiality. it's, It's splitting you. And James says, you're a judge with evil Motives. That makes me think of it the scene, and this is getting kind of old school here, but the bar scene in the movie Batman Begins. The man who killed Bruce Wayne's parents was released from prison because the judge was in the pocket of the mafia, and Bruce Wayne goes to the mob bar where the mob boss holds court to confront him. And in that bar, there are all these city officials who, who are all actually clients of, um, of that mob boss, including the judge who had released the murder. And he's having a great time. He's laughing. He's got a, a beautiful woman around one arm and a, like a cocktail on the other. He, he's having a great time. He's a judge with evil motives, which is what a church becomes when it shows partiality to certain kinds of people over others. The bigger point here isn't just rich versus poor, but it's about making judgments, making evaluations of people based on what is purely external. So God looks at the heart, but we look at the clothes, at the background, the skin color. We make external judgments, we make judgments based on what is only external. And the scary thing is, is that this is something that we actually do instinctively. Uh, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, says that human nature is not just intrinsically moral, it's also intrinsically moralistic, critical, and judgmental. And he mentions a website called Project Implicit. If you Google Project Implicit, you can, you can find it pretty easily. It's, it's a site run by Harvard. And what you do is, on this website is to take tests that measure your implicit bias. Uh, racial bias, gender bias, even weight bias, uh, about a dozen categories. And what it does is time how fast you associate positive ideas with different types of people. And here's what Hite says about taking that test. Be forewarned. It can be disturbing. You can actually feel yourself moving more slowly when you are, when you are asked to associate good things with the faces of one race rather than another. You can watch as your implicit attitude contradicts your explicit values. Most people turn out to have negative implicit associations with many social groups, such as black people, immigrants, obese people, and the elderly. Uh, I took one of these tests a couple years ago. And Haidt is right, it, it was disturbing. So what James is warning us about is something that basically everyone is tempted to. And if you don't fight it, if you don't actively repent of it, it can take you to some pretty dark places don't show partiality based on what is merely external what what someone's wearing, how they talk how how easily you can pronounce their name their their skin color where where someone lives, where they're from. Let me do a little experiment. I'm going to name a few places and consider how you instinctively react to those places what what do you instinctively think about the people who live there here goes south side red state suburbs inglewood north shore do, do, do you find yourself without even mentioning a single actual person do you do you find yourself making judgments about the kinds of people who live there now, I, I, I think that we're a friendly church. I mean, people tell, us, tell me that we're a friendly church. And I like to think that, we, that no one would ever assign someone a place to sit based on the clothes that they were wearing or anything else like that. But is there a kind of person who, if they came to church one day, you would hope they didn't come back? Is there a kind of person who, if they were in a position of leadership here, you would have a hard time listening to. Don't show partiality, James says. Especially for the rich and important over the poor. Don't make value judgments about people based on your external criteria, because when you do, when you do, you're not loving all of your neighbors. So that's what's wrong. They're, they're showing partiality. But, but what makes that so wrong? What, what makes showing partiality so wrong? Three reasons. Here's number one. It contradicts God's own attitude. The reason partiality is so wrong is because it contradicts God's own attitude. That's the point of verse 5, going into the first part of verse 6. a Partiality against the poor contradicts God's own attitude towards the poor. Let's read that again in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? My friend, Jonathan Gelly leads worship at the downtown congregation, and he told me how last weekend, he and his wife helped one of the women who sings in the worship band downtown, they helped her move into her new apartment. She got married yesterday, I think, so they were setting up their new place a week ago. But when they got to their old place, where they were moving stuff out of, the fiance ended up being three hours late with the moving truck. So I hope that didn't give her second thoughts about marrying him. Uh, But as they were waiting for the truck to show up, they just sat and talked. And this woman that they're helping, she's African-American, and her grandmother was there with them. And so they're just sitting and talking. And Jonathan said that he could have sat and listened to that grandmother for hours and hours more. Because of her faith. She had come to Chicago as part of the Great Migration. Uh, the, the movement of millions of African Americans from out of the south to northern cities. So her life began in struggle. And there's always been struggle the whole way because of poverty and racism. Because, but she's rich in faith. It's not a naive faith. It's not, a, it's not an easy faith. But it's a real faith that was so impactful for Jonathan that he told me about it twice. That's, that's the impression he, it made on him. Someone rejected and despised by the world. But the people in power, but exactly the kind of person James is talking about here. Chosen by God to be rich in faith and an heir of his kingdom. He's talking about salvation. And James isn't saying, you know, that only poor people get into heaven and and the rich are all doomed, every single one of them. But he's he's saying to his readers, look around you. Look at how many people who have nothing in this world, who, are, who, are counted for, who aren't counted for anything in this world, but have found eternal life and the hope of a glory denied to them in this life through faith in Jesus. Look at how many of them are, there are. So isn't it obvious that, that when you discriminate against the poor, you're running in the opposite direction of God's own heart? So verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. The one God has honored with faith, the one God has honored with being an heir to his kingdom, you have dishonored. What's so wrong with not loving all of your neighbors is that it contradicts God's own attitude. It's not just about material poverty or financial poverty. The the scholar Doug Mu says that in the New Testament, uh, the poor is a category that covers material and spiritual realities. So Moose says that God delights especially to shower his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are most keenly aware of their own inadequacy. That's what it means to receive God's grace, that, that you come to him with your own inadequacies, your own insufficiencies, and you look to the only one who is adequate and sufficient for you. That's what it means to receive grace. And what that means is that, that when you show partiality against those who are inadequate in some ways. The problem might be that you're actually convinced of your own adequacy. Your thoughts about other people might actually reveal your thoughts about yourself. You're not seeing how God's grace is working in someone else because maybe you don't really know what it means for his grace to work in you. You don't really know what it means to be poor, to be a poor, weak inadequate person before him yourself but god is rich in mercy he makes poor inadequate people rich in faith and when you know god's heart like that you can start to love all of your neighbors second reason for what's so wrong with their partiality it grates against reality What's so wrong with showing partiality for the rich over the poor, what this church was doing, is that it grates against reality. Let me show you again that, what I it, it mean, starting in verse, the second part of verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, we can't know for sure what exactly was going on here, but, but there are at least two themes here, legal opposition and blasphemy. Take blasphemy. They're, they're blaspheming the honorable name by which they're, they're called. They're, they're blaspheming the name of Jesus. Again, we don't know exactly what was going on here, but, but for this church to grovel before the rich and despise the poor, it grates against the reality of who exactly their friends are. It's not just blasphemy, though. It's the the rich are oppressing you and dragging you into court. The historical record suggests that at, at this time and place, Land ownership was being consolidated into fewer and fewer—the uh, hands of fewer and fewer people. So there are a small number of wealthy landowners getting wealthier, and a large number of poor laborers getting poor and losing their property. So this dragging into court is probably talking about the, the kinds of stuff that that, that have always gone on—you know, forcing people off their property for late payments on their mortgage or exorbitant interest rates that the poor can never really pay back. Just the usual stuff. If you want to think about it in Chicago terms, something not too far back in our history, think about redlining. Some of you, you may have heard that term. In the 20th century, as lots of African Americans migrated to Chicago from the south real estate and housing finance organizations made agreements, some informal, some on paper, to protect property values by not selling homes to black people. And they made maps of the city showing neighborhood property values with different colors for different values. Uh, But those colors were determined by the percentage of minorities living in them. And if a neighborhood was majority black, it was colored red on the map. So it's redlining. And if you lived in a redlined neighborhood, you could not get a mortgage. You couldn't, all all the benefits of owning property were denied to you just by, that's how things worked. That's why Chicago is as racially segregated as it is today. It, It didn't just happen. There were policies on the books that ensured that it happened. That wasn't that long ago. And it's, it's, it's easy to see from hindsight how how wicked those things are, but but James' point is that when you're fawning over rich people, you, you're you're grading against the real the cold reality with with how this world works. Now, you know, what you do with this is probably influenced by your own political views. Um, if you're a free market kind of person, uh, you can point to the fact how in the last twenty five years over a billion people have been lifted out of extreme poverty, and that the global poverty rate is lower than it's ever been in human history. And the reason for that is probably some combination of technology and global trade. That's a good thing. On the other hand, if you're on the other side of the spectrum, you can point to the fact that inequality is also increasing. And in the United States, for the first time since the Spanish flu pandemic 100 years ago, the national life expectancy rate is declining. And one of the big reasons for that is that for people at the bottom, what's called the, what's called deaths of despair, those are increasing. Drug and alcohol overdose, alcoholic liver disease, suicide, those are increasing. So what you think about poverty and wealth is colored by your political views. And, but I, I challenge you is that, that whatever vocation you're in, think about the question... How does what I produce help me love my neighbor? But however you do that, however you land on these kinds of things, James is saying is that if you're a Christian and you're enamored with power, if you're enamored with wealth, if you're enamored with celebrity, you're grating against reality. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. That's how God does things. It's not how the world does things. Love all of your neighbors because when you don't, it grates against reality. One more reason why this partiality is so wrong it makes you a lawbreaker. Starting in verse 8 If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Now, the royal law doesn't mean the Old Testament law in itself. It's, it's that law that's fulfilled by Jesus and reinterpreted by Jesus. So, so, so think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about how Jesus takes the law given to Moses in the Old Testament that governs what we do and how he extends it down into our hearts. So it's not just about killing someone, Jesus says. It's about your anger. It's not just about a, a one-night stand. It's about lust. And at the same time, the Bible says, Jesus has removed the curse of the law. He's taken away the penalty for breaking the law by dying in our place according to the law. So Jesus has both fulfilled the law and he's driven it down more deeply into our hearts. That, that's the royal law. That's the king's law. That's the law of King Jesus. And at the heart of that law, at the heart of what it means to obey Jesus, is loving your neighbor. And when you don't show partiality, when, when your treatment of other people is not connected to their external value to you, you've fulfilled the royal law. You, you've loved your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But that doesn't seem to fit all of James' readers. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In other words, showing partiality for the rich over the poor means that you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Which means that you're not fulfilling the royal law. Which means that you are guilty of breaking the law. You're a lawbreaker. If that's not enough. It's not that you're guilty of this little part over here. But you're doing fine over, over there. It's like, you know, kids, if you take a spelling test and you, you get 19 words right, but you get one word wrong, that's great because you, you made a 95% on, on your test. But God's law doesn't work that way, though. Verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, there is a fundamental unity to God's law, the, the law of King Jesus. The, the adulterer doesn't get to say, well, at least I'm not a murderer. <laughs> Which means that the person who loves the rich man and hates the poor man doesn't get to say, well, at least I don't cheat on my taxes. or At least I didn't yell at my kids today. Now, to show partiality makes you a lawbreaker which means you will be judged as a lawbreaker. Look at that in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. If you were with us last week, you remember how James called it the law of liberty in chapter 1. It's the law of freedom. It's the law which comes from the freedom of the gospel, which gives you freedom to obey it. It means that the law which is fulfilled by Christ in every way that we can never fulfill it ourselves, and now he's given his spirit to us to empower us to obey it. Not perfectly, but sincerely, genuinely, by the power of God's Spirit to obey him, to live for him, to, to fulfill the law of loving all of your neighbors. That that's the law of liberty. And it's that law of liberty, of freedom, that you will be judged by. The Protestant Reformers said that you're only ever saved by Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. You're saved by faith alone apart from works. It's faith in Christ that saves you, not what you do. But, they said, true faith is never actually alone. True faith is always accompanied by genuine obedience as a sign of its validity. And that'll be the point that James nails down in next week's passage. But, but, but true faith is never alone. There should be a life of obedience that comes out of your faith. And the fruits of that faith, the fruit of true faith, will be the proof of genuine faith at the judgment. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So to have faith in Christ means that Christ gives you his spirit who empowers your You for obedience. In other words, speak and act, love your neighbors, all of them, as if that obedience actually matters, which it does. James has this to say to the person who does not or cannot love his neighbors. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. To put that another way, the person who treats other people or who treats certain kinds of people with cruelty or indifference or contempt should not expect God to treat him with mercy and delight. The gospel is never really at work in that person because there's no mercy. Now, I'll stop there for a moment. These are really heavy words, aren't they? And this is one of those passages where it's really tempting to think about other people who need to hear this. I can think of those other people who aren't very merciful. I can think of those really judgy people. Thank goodness I'm not like them. And what you might do is start patting yourself on the back because this is about them, but not about you. And that's a danger. So let me put it this way. Is there a person in your life or a type of person who consistently receives your judgment instead of your mercy? Is there someone who, in your words, in your thoughts, in, in your conversations with that person, or in your conversations about them, who is always the object of your judgment, but never the object of your mercy? If so, you're not loving your neighbors yourself, which makes you a lawbreaker, which will be the basis for your judgment one day, James says you know that sounds really heavy james finishes with this this little bit of relief because again if you're like me you're so aware of how you your love for other people is always falling short somewhere and i think james knows how heavy this is sitting on his readers so he finishes with this with this this re, this relief this hope the end of verse 13 mercy triumphs over judgment one scholar puts it this way he says that you know in yourself your your obedience to the royal law, your obedience to what Jesus commands you, is never perfect. It's never complete. So in yourself, you'll always deserve judgment. That's what sin does. It makes you a lawbreaker, and you'll always be a lawbreaker. But when you show mercy, he says, your merciful attitudes and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within you. And because you're united by faith to Jesus, who fulfilled the law perfectly for you, it means that you can have confidence on for your vindication before God that day. In other words, your mercy for other people, which does not come from your own goodness, but which comes from a heart that's been transformed by grace, that mercy is proof that what is coming for you is not judgment from God, it's mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's why you should love all of your neighbors. Because when you don't, it makes you a lawbreaker. So love all of your neighbors. Some people in James' church weren't doing that. They, they claimed to be holding to the faith of Jesus, but they were showing very unloving partiality to people who had no value to them. And that loveless judgment, that contemptuous partiality, it contradicts God's own attitude It grates against reality and it makes them lawbreakers. But for the person who really holds to faith in Jesus, the person whose heart has been and is being transformed by the work of God's grace, by this law of liberty, you have a different way to go. It's not an easy way. Loving all of your neighbors is never easy. Showing mercy to people is never easy, it's always costly. But it's how you love your neighbor. And at the end of the day, the kind of person James is calling you to be here is basically someone who looks a lot like Jesus. You know, Jesus is the the truest and the greatest lover of all of his neighbors. He's like the good Samaritan who stopped on the road to rescue a dying and helpless man, even though his ethnicity was was on the other side of the divide. and, And in loving his neighbor, the Samaritan was saying no to ethnic hatred. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And Jesus is like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one because he loves the one. The one always has value to him. And Jesus is like the father of the prodigal son who goes running to meet his son, even though his son had once despised his love and wanted nothing to do with it. He, he deserved judgment, but he got mercy. Jesus is the only one who can truly claim to have perfectly loved All of his neighbors. And he loved you as his neighbor. He loved his neighbor. He loved you as himself. So he gave himself for his neighbor. He gave his life for you. And he was raised from the dead in glory. So when you trust him and when you give him glory... And by yourself, even in fits and starts, when you, when you start to obey this law of liberty, the law of freedom, and you love all of your neighbors, and you show mercy even to those who don't hold any external value to you or to anyone else, when you do that, you're starting to look a lot more like Jesus. So love your neighbors, all of them. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that Jesus loved all of his neighbors as himself. He loved us and died for us. Help us to be like him. Forgive us when we're not like him. Forgive us when we're not loving. Forgive us when we show partiality. Forgive us when we show judgment without mercy. We're sinners. We're, we're lawbreakers. Thank you that Jesus fulfilled the law in our place. Thank you that obedience to him now gives us freedom. By your mercy, not by our strength, not by our good intentions, but by your mercy, help us to be people who show mercy. We ask this in the name, in the great and merciful name of Jesus. Amen.